everyone. Welcome back to the Valkyrie Podcast. Today we have Hang Zhu with us uh, to talk uh, to us a bit about some of the equity opportunities on the markets today, including Tootsie Roll Industries and Memetics Group. Uh, the markets now are obviously in somewhat of a bit of a rally after some tepid activity before. But uh, before we actually start discussing the specific equity opportunities that Hank uh, sees, uh, let's get an idea of what Hank's investing perspective is. So uh, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, like uh, your background, a bit about your CV, why you're interested in the buy side and public markets? And uh, also, can you explain just a bit about your investment approach and why you think it works in uh, an environment like this? Yeah, absolutely. So, so I'll start off with my background. Um, so I went to school, I studied business at Queen's University in Canada. And, um, you know, I, I first got interested in finance and investing by being part of a student investment club. Uh, and so basically that's what got me started. And then, um, and then I was able to apply for and land a investment banking summer internship in my third year. That was Credit Suisse, right? Yeah, yeah so that was at Credit Suisse. Um, that was a very interesting summer, worked <laughs> extremely hard. I was working, I think, close to 100 hours per, uh, a week. Okay, so I guess the and regular then, treatment for uh, the investment banking interns, no? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but, <laughs> but it, was a great, it was a great experience, uh, and I was able to get a return offer. So after graduating, I joined Credit Suisse as an uh, investment banking analyst, and I did that for two years. And, uh, I mean, if I were to just... Uh, distill down the experience, it's really like the financial military. They kind of just teach you through pure repetition, like how to actually do corporate finance in the real world. <laughs> and it, it's an incredibly valuable experience because they don't really teach you that in, in school. They teach you corporate finance theories, but they don't teach you like how you actually do it in practice. So that was good. And then after two years, I was, um, I knew I wanted to transition to the buy side because I was, I've always been interested in investing. Um, so, so that's when I applied and I was able to get a job at Clearvest Group, which is a mid-market private equity firm based in Toronto. Right. And so far I've been with Clearvest for, uh, just under two years. Uh, how do you think, uh, working in private markets has sort of affected your approach on public markets? Has your approach on public markets always been the same or is there some, uh, is there some influence? I, I think working in private markets has definitely, uh, absolutely enhanced my, uh, I guess my approach in public markets because the skills are just so, so uh, transferable, right? Especially if you're a fundamentals or a value investor, it's 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 directly applicable. And actually, in my opinion, I think private markets actually does a better job of training uh, those skills than maybe maybe public markets, just because uh, you have a lot more access to information to to management uh, in the private markets. Uh, things happen a lot more, a lot slower in the public markets. Right. Was, if you were working at a hedge fund, for example, you probably look at you know two or two or three opportunities per per week. Whereas in in private equity, um, every year we only close two or three deals. And liquidity so, must uh, also play a role. I mean, the due diligence process is probably taken even more seriously because you, first of all, don't absolutely. usually you're not able to diversify as much, and of course you can't really get rid of crappy holdings, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like it, the, due, the, the due diligence process is just absolutely comprehensive. It's a two to three month kind of full on uh, just a comprehensive process. So at the end, basically that, the idea is that after the due diligence process, uh, we become experts in that industry and in that company. And we basically become thought partners to the management team. That, at least that's the clearest approach. Right. So being a sort of having a, a sufficient understanding of the business where you can actually make strategic decisions. And I mean, uh, but a exactly. rest will often have like board, uh, it's uh, it's partners or principals as board members. Right. And a lot of the uh, I mean, yeah, naturally. Right. Yeah. We, we always get board seats because we're material in investors. And, right. And um, yeah, basically, the idea is that after our due diligence process, we were able to be effective board members and help uh, management team make decisions. The Make funny thing, though, about strategic decisions. Right, right. I see. But the funny thing about Clairvest is, uh, it usually takes minority positions, right? So, in a way, the kind of growth objectives uh, as a sort of Clairvest investor, or a as Clairvest invests, is sort of similar to what uh, an individual investor would have on public markets. Of course, minus the the influence, let's say, that you know a completely fragmented public investor would uh, would have. But 
isn't it is it similar would you say in terms of like the uh, the way you no, sit I, on a whole thing i think i think um i think our role is is probably closer to um traditional private equity than to public markets just because of the i guess the influence that we have i think pretty much we have as much influence as somebody who owns a majority controlling a business because because it's i mean it's if if we didn't then we wouldn't even do the deal because we Basically, we want to go into situations where the managements are open are open to partnering with us. So if if it's if it's ever a situation where the management wants to control everything by himself and doesn't want any input from us, then we probably won't even do that deal. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, if you can't leverage your influence, uh, you might as well look elsewhere for opportunities where you would be able to, right? Yeah, exactly. And our influence isn't to isn't to basically tell the CEO what to do. It's really Part of it is to uh, have a, you know, to make better decisions because um, it's it's one thing where the management just makes whatever decision that decision that he thinks is best in his head, but it's another thing having to present and defend an, a decision in front of a team of board members. Mm. And also, and also, it's it's important because it just helps protect our investment by being, right by, because we have that influence. Right, I follow. But uh, bringing back the discussion, uh, bring the discussion back to uh, uh, public markets. Uh, yeah. So just to finish up on kind of this, you know, the initial prompt. Uh, what would you say is your? How would you describe your approach though to to uh, public market investing? Yeah. So so that's a great question, and um, I, I think I'm going to give a relatively longer answer. Just that's fine. I, we have all the time in the world. Yeah. <laughs> it would it wouldn't do the question justice. Uh, if I just if I literally just told you these are the three three things I look for because that's not that's simply not true. And it would be a gimmick um, if it were, and you know probably not a very effective system, right? If it was only three uh, things. So yeah, yeah. So it's so basically I'm I'm predominantly a value investor, so I look for uh, quality relative to price, and you know price is very easy to see because that's just a valuation with a multiple that the company is trading at. Mm -hmm. so, but but then the real question becomes how do you assess the quality of a business? And and I'm sure every investor has their own framework in their mind when they look at businesses. For me, uh, I focus on three key buckets: so industry, uh, company, and then management. And 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 also say that in the order of importance, in my opinion. So let's start off with industry. Um, so. Industry basically, being the most important, right? Industry being the most important. So okay. I'm basically, I, I look for industries with structure, structural secular growth as opposed to you know cyclical growth or something that's more faddish. And the reason why, uh, so for me, growth is paramount is because growth really covers all, a lot of uh, other problems. So if, if a company or industry is growing, you don't necessarily need to have the best management team in the world. It's okay if you you know miss budget for one year if you're growing. Whereas on the flip side, if your company is shrinking, that really brings a lot of your other problems to roost. Um, and basically, if your company is shrinking, then your management team and shareholders are under the gun to do something to fix the company, and that could that could lead to bad decision making. So in most cases, uh, I try to look for companies. Or industries that are that are growing and and have secular that exhibit secular growth. Yeah, even from just a technical perspective, though, I think it's probably smart to do because a lot of the performance comes from how the sector is just generally doing as well. Just purely thinking about how markets sort of move, right? Yeah, of course, all things being equal, you always want to look for things that are obviously industries that are growing. But I think I think my argument is that it goes beyond just that. I think. Basically, being in growth mode is a lot more favorable than in being in a situation where you're declining, more than just, I guess, the the growth aspect of it. Right, I follow. There's there's a behavioral aspect to that as well. Um, so other things I look for in industry, you know, I look for industries that are fragmented and that's in early innings of its evolution, um, because that's where you could, you know, that's that's when you're still able to generate return on investment higher than your cost of capital. Right. Uh, and it also being fragmented means you have the option of doing acquisitions, which could be accretive when done right. And I also try to look for industries that are uh, fairly, I guess, that are not exposed to ex uh, extraneous factors like regulations or technology disruption. 
um, basically an industry where you're kind of in control of your own destiny. You're not at the whim of, of some government regulator. But uh, just sorry to interrupt, but uh, just regarding your point about acquisition, so you actually prefer it when your company is sort of in a position to acquire, which makes sense. But uh, how, do you think there's a, sort of a very reliable way for companies to actually make acquisitions that aren't value destroying? Because so typically they are, right? So uh, you know, what do you think? Uh, it, uh, what do you think the trade-off is really when when you're making sort of an acquisition as a you know in a fragmented industry? Because of course you pay a premium and there's a risk of overpayment. And uh, yeah, I, I think I think that's a misconception because mm. the, the the biggest the, all the acquisitions that people hear are, are the mega acquisitions, right? Like for example. AT&T acquiring Time Warner, those are the ones that make all the headlines. Right. And those, and those ones are the most risky because you're paying a premium, like you said, to whatever that the company was trading at before. The acquisitions that I'm speaking of is the ones that are very small, like the tuck-in acquisitions. So those ones are often acquired at a significant discount to what you believe your company's worth. And those ones are basically ones where you can also get the most amount of synergies. Because, for example, um, let's talk. Let's, for example, if you have a waste collection business, mm -hmm. and, and you're basically serving a neighborhood, and then half the houses on this neighborhood is served by a smaller competitor, if you acquire that competitor, you can literally eliminate all of the cost in that company because your waste trucks can just service that entire neighborhood. Right, so the root the root economics is seriously improved. Is that the idea? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's route what we call route synergies in that in that case. But basically, there's there's if you do tucking acquisitions correctly, you should you should be able to buy them at uh, valuations that are company valuation, as well as realize significant cost synergies. Right, I see. Okay, that's actually a really useful clarification because uh, honestly, I, I didn't realize that uh, it was only these sort of headline big public companies that were being acquired at such massive premiums. But I guess it makes sense. I mean, when you're acquiring in tuck-in, you're sort of acquiring smaller companies, much less certain, and also there's the the liquidity premium that has to be factored into, you know, surely into the analysis. But yeah. uh yeah, sorry, I inter I interrupted you though. Uh, finishing up on industry, then, did you have any further points to talk about, like the industry industry strata of sort of how you how you look at a company? No, I think I think those are the main points. Um, and you know, it gets a lot more nuanced when you're studying uh, an industry, but I think those are the key characteristics that we look for. Uh, at least I look for. And then, so let's move on to company then. Um, so. Basically, there's also a list of things that I look for in a company or in, in, in its business models. So starting off, uh, I try to look for recurring revenues. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that's a, that's a pretty big buzzword that everybody says they look for. Right. I, I assure you, it is very important. Uh, and the reason for that is because, you know, when you're growing a company, if you have recurring revenue, then you have basically a base that you're growing off, off of. So you, whatever you grow, you know, you, you're just adding on top. Right, um, right. But yeah, if, yeah if you, you won't suddenly, like your, your cash flows won't just cyclically or suddenly fall off a cliff at some point just because of... Yeah. Uh, that, that's one aspect of it. But the other aspect is that if you don't have recurring revenues, then not only do you have to add, um, basically sell to grow the company, but you also have to sell to replace your existing demand. So it just makes it much harder to grow a business if you don't have recurring revenues. Right, 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 right. Yeah, so, so recurring revenues is very important. Other things that are important are uh, basically, I try to look for companies with strong margins because that means, um, that means they have a differentiated product and there's a lot of value add in their, in their value chain mm. as, as, com as opposed to you know, a commodities business, a commodity, for example, a commodity distributor, there's very little value add because um, you're just, you're just reselling a commodity. Right. Um, and then it becomes pretty much just completely at the whims of often, you know, these sort of scale factors and things that are really a lot less uh, under management control, right? I mean, it's just sort of a, a function of, yeah. 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 And the other thing of having, the other benefit of having strong margins that it gives you, you know, a lot of cushion for things to go wrong. If, for example, if 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 cost increase unexpectedly by five percent and your margin shrink by five percent, that's 
you know, that's probably okay if your margins are 30%. I mean, it's obviously not a good thing, but you can live through that. But right. If you're operating on razor-thin margins, if you're operating at 5% margins and your cost like increased significantly, then you're absolutely screwed in that situation. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it would mean bankruptcy, I suppose, you know, unless uh, there was any kind of hope. Uh, yeah, you have to, you basically, you're, then you're under the gun to, to do some to do something to turn around the company and, you know, that, and then again, as you said, it can lead to aspects. Yeah. It can lead to bad decision-making. Right. 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 Um, so margins are good. Like I should look for strong margins. I should also, the other thing that I I want to emphasize, I should look for companies with strong balance of power with suppliers and customers. Okay. Right. So like the basic sort of Porter's five forces, like a favorable dynamic there. And, uh, yeah. And the classic example that I would give is that, you know, one of the most common pitfalls for companies is that, you know, 70% of their cost of their revenue comes from one customer. And one day that customer just decides that they, they want to change suppliers and then the company just or vertically integrate or something, you know? Yeah. 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 So it just, you always, you should always look for companies that doesn't have, you know, significant customer concentration because, because otherwise you're, you're at the whimp of your customer. Right, they can, right. They have so much bargaining power over you. Actually, yeah, Valkyrie just published an article about uh, a company called Tivity Health that uh, is really struggling because uh, a huge proportion of its revenue comes from one uh, from one health plan company, and it's uh, really putting it under a lot of price pressure. It was down uh, a huge amount, at least uh, in December, when the the sell off yes. was also happening. But anyway, not to interrupt you. Uh, so, what else do you look for uh, in a company? Yeah, and other things, you know, other other things that are on the Porter's five forces, like barriers to entry, uh, economies of scale. You know, I should look for companies that are fairly asset light. Those are all things, characteristics that you should look for. Right, because it would just be more cash generative at that point, right? If it was less capital intensive, is that what you mean by asset light? Yeah, exactly. So, like, basically, com- companies that doesn't require a significant upfront investment into like equipment or working capital to to grow. Uh, I favor companies where you can grow just by, um, I guess, w- without making that strong upfront investment because because it's just more risky, right? If you have to put up, uh, for, think about think about a mining project. Um, you have to first construct, spend hundreds of millions of dollars to construct the mine before you can start making your first dollar of cash flow. And if anything goes wrong, your original estimation of the project economics then you've spent all this money and you're not going to make the return that you thought you you were going to make. Right. And there's just going to be huge write-offs and just a a total disaster. Right. Right. Yeah. There's just more risks associated with companies that are more capital intensive. Of course, that also constitutes a barrier to entry though. I mean, it means that new entrants would also struggle with the same thing. So I guess if you have scale already, that would be an advantage, wouldn't it be? That's right. Yeah. So, so some of these things are interrelated. So that's, um, that, that's a good point. Okay, so what because else? Ca- capital, capital is a barrier to entry. <laughs> right, exactly. Like capital intensity, it's one of the classic uh, kind of Porter Five again. Porter Five forces always coming back to that <laughs> basic management stuff. But uh, yeah. yeah, so what else do you look for uh, in a company? Uh, are there any ratios that you use in particular? I know that uh, you know certain investors, like Jim Chanos, for example, he's very focused on these like non-gimmickable investments like return on invested capital and things like that. And, uh, you know, what, what are the sort of the, are there any kind of ratios that you look at besides just general margins, anything a little bit more exotic, uh, or. Um, I, I wouldn't say so. I think some, I try to look for, I try to keep it simple. Right. It's, it, 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 I don't want to overcomplicate, um, analysis. So I, I look for EBITDA margin or EBIT margin. Mm-hmm. Uh, as as a basically that that tells me whether the company has high value add and, and whether they have a differentiated product, and then I should look for uh, return on net assets, which is a good indicator of capital intensity. Right, of course, because net assets will yeah yeah naturally den- the denominator will be high in a capital intensive business. All right. right, and what about uh, our uh, what about management though? Uh, like, what are the sort of yeah. things you how do you how do you actually even assess the management of a of a public company? What's your approach? Because it's yeah, a little so, bit more holistic, wouldn't it be? Yeah, so that, I think this is the most interesting part because and, and the reason first of all reason why um, I, I put management at the last at the, at the 
last place on my list is not because I don't think management is important, but just because it's so hard, like you said, to actually assess management's capabilities. Um, so you can't you can't really rely on management being being able to be the heroes of that business. Um, right, right. You know, Warren Buffett always says that you want to buy a business. Uh, such that an idiot could could run it. That, that yeah, the best and, and the converse. Yeah, and the converse quote. What was it again? Like, oh yeah, a management with a reputation to turn around businesses when he meets a you know a business like airlines or something with difficult economics. Yeah. it's usually the manager's reputation that gets damaged or something like that. I can't no, remember. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah, basically, like when ma- when management with a strong reputation meets like an industry with the poor reputation, it's usually the industry that right. That's that exactly to the end or something yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, it was exactly that. I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and I think the element of that is true. Um, it basically the, the industry and the company characteristics, uh, in my opinion, really determines um, uh, a big chunk of what how an investment plays out. But I have seen situations, at least with Clarevest, where the management team really, really have outdone themselves and really basically made a good investment into a, a phenomenal investment. Right, I see. So, I see. So management is very important. So in terms of what I look for, uh, I, the most important thing I look for is just skin in the game. And that's, that doesn't mean just options, but also like manage, managers having real shares and equity ownership in the company. Because I think that's the best way to align management and shareholder interest. And the reason why that's important is because uh, when, when bad things happen to your company, you don't want the management to just act in their own self-interest or, you know, or just leave the company and go pursue an opportunity some, somewhere else. Um, and they're less, much less likely to do that when they have uh, a mat- material stake in the company. If, if, say, for example, 70% of their net worth is invested in a company and things start going wrong in that company, they're not going to just uh, leave the company, right? Yeah, they're going to be desperate to turn things around. Yeah, exactly. So that they're fully aligned in those types of situations. So that's, that's obviously very important. Um, I try to, so this is more of a personal opinion, but I, I usually try to look for, uh, operators as opposed to professional managers. So operator is basically my definition, somebody who, who've been in the business for a long time, who've basically run different divisions of the business and worked their way up as opposed to a professional manager who kind of jumps from job to job or oftentimes industry to industry occupying the executive positions. Right, attempting and, turnarounds and things like that, and trying to. Yeah, yeah, and that's not to say like there isn't like professional managers are bad, and there's a lot of examples of very successful professional managers, which is why I say this is more of a personal opinion. Um, and then, yeah, I think other than that, it's the other other thing I try to look for is just management integrity. Basically, if things when things go bad, how, how does a management team deal with it? Do they kind of give it to you straight was it should make the picture more rosy than it actually is and try to beat around the bush. So, right. So you would you be looking in that case at like uh, interactions with analysts on the earnings calls, like sort of how they dodge or, you know, how they approach, uh, you know, difficult and tough analyst questions and things like that or? Exactly. Yeah, that, that's exactly what it is. It's, it's obviously very, very difficult to assess. And you have to, and you, you don't always see man, how management will react, right? Because there's often case there's no precedent when things go bad um right so exactly it, it, so you have no baseline yeah. but i guess if you exactly. feel that they're being realistic then that's kind of a, a good situation or you know if they're if they're not worried about short-term uh, damage to the stock due to some kind of slightly candid remarks i suppose that's you know a positive thing right yeah exactly and basically what i so what for example when, the, when i do public market investing I, I like to actually read or listen to the earnings calls just to get a sense for what management's like and how they actually answer question, tough questions. Right, and that right. Will, that will usually give you a little bit of a sense in terms of like what, I guess, what the managers are like. Are, like, for example, there's managers who, who just like to address, you know, the, 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 the themes of the, that industry and talk about like all these cool things they're doing or are they basically, I mean, sorry, I, I guess you, you get a sense for what the managers are focused on and whether, um, like, you want to avoid situations where managers are uh, paying only lip service to all the like all the all the initiatives, and actually, you want you want to find ones who are, who are actually 
implementing initiatives and actually telling you all the the struggles or whatever whatever things come up right no i follow i follow but regarding because there's kind of a, a big discussion around executive compensation and i don't mean just the size of it uh but like you know not to turn this into kind of a tesla debate but one of the one of the big criticisms that short sellers have of of tesla is the way that uh, elon musk's uh, uh compensation program has been structured because it's very heavily oriented around sort of stock ownership i think it was uh I can't even remember the figure. It was an absurd amount that would sort of be vested at huge uh, market market cap uh, milestones. And I just wanted to ask you. So obviously, you know, having an equity an equity stake in the business and being sort of your wealth being linked to the the equity performance of a of a company. Do you do you think that there's certain uh, situations where maybe that might not be so positive? I mean, for example, if uh, you know if executives are on margin. On uh, you know in their own stock, or maybe if the milestones and the sort of uh, benchmark for achieving executive compensation uh, uh, are maybe linked too much to sort of market-based rather than operational uh, uh, milestones. What, what do you think about this kind of? Dis- do you like? Are there any caveats to your approach to looking at executive uh, compensation and executive alignment? Yeah, so um, <laughs> it's a sort of I'm not an expert on. On management compensation, so this, right now there am I. <laughs> this is not really an expert opinion, but I, generally, like I think I agree with the points you're you're trying to say. Like I, if I if I was given the choice, I'd rather set operate operations based targets as opposed to share price targets to align, um, sh- uh, I guess management and shareholder interest, just because like there's many games that managers can play to to boost share price in the near term, but that you know jeopardizes the long-term future of a company. Right. And yeah, that's exactly of, what I was getting at. Uh, yeah. And in terms of, um, I guess, managers being on margin, <laughs> I guess in Elon Musk's, Elon Musk's case, yeah, I don't think it's, I don't think it's healthy for him to be on margin buying uh, stock because he already owns such a majority, such a significant stake. Usually, like, for example, I'm just, I'm just going off of my Clarivest experience. The situations where we would get, give the CEO a loan to purchase stock in the company is it's only in cases where they don't have a lot of net worth to invest with us. So so that basically we, we want them to bring up their investment. That's right. So you where, lever where them would, up. You lever them up. <laughs> yeah. But like if, if, the, if the manager already owns 20% of the company, we wouldn't give them a loan because because why? Because then it could lead, it could potentially lead to bad decision making again, right? Because if then they're much more uh, concerned about the downside than their upside. If, right. If, right. If more than a hundred percent of your net worth is is contingent on this company, then you're gonna do whatever you think you gotta do to preserve the value as opposed to grow the company. Right. Right. Of course. Yeah. I mean, you turn it into a complete survival situation, pretty much. Uh, no, I mean, it makes yeah. sense. It makes sense. And of course, you know, you need to have a similar level of, let's say, commitment to the success of a company as the management, especially when you're not the management. Right. You definitely don't want to be uh, more committed than they are. So, uh, right. Of course. Of course. But uh, w- w- what else would you do? You, do you like, uh, for example, when you're looking at management and sort of uh, w- would you incorporate company culture and these like, again, very sort of hazy elements into your analysis at this point as well? Or is that something you don't really pay attention to? I definitely pay attention to it. Like I always, for example, I always look at the Glassdoor reviews just to get a sense of the company culture. Right. Um, it's just very difficult to actually know, right, without being on the inside. Oh, yeah, so, for sure. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's hard to make a decision solely on that. Um, but it is important. Yeah, uh, because like for example, when I when I look at a stock, I'll always like visit their YouTube channel and sort of understand like what sort of things they they're they're trying to espouse and their values. But I guess again, you can't really substantiate how committed they are to to any of it. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah. But uh, right, so okay, those were the three prongs then of sort of how you look at a company. You know, a strong industry characterized by good economics and you know hopefully barriers to entry and other you know, protective competitive advantages. And you know maybe some like adaptational competitive advantages as well. Then you want high margins, high value, differentiated businesses, things that add value and can't easily be replaced in the value chain of companies. Uh, then you also don't want uh, customer concentration risk. So sorry, I'm just summarizing this. And yeah. then for uh, management, you just want general executive alignment 
and sort of a healthy culture and ideally with an operator management rather than sort of a professional management who maybe doesn't understand exactly like the market or, you know, things like that. Right. I mean, that I feel like that could be maybe the biggest risk factor in having these professional managers come in. Right. Is that they don't understand like their markets as well. They come in and they try to restructure and they really compromise, you know, some critical value points of a product because they believe it's expendable. I don't know. I just yeah, sort of imagine exactly. that, that. Right. Yeah, that, that's exactly right on. So, uh, right. Okay. But, and, uh, in terms of your, uh, right. So now we've talked about like pretty much your criteria for what makes a business sort of, uh, high quality to you. Right. But what sort of risk reward, uh, trade-offs are you looking for when you're investing in a, in a business? My understanding is that you do very high margin of safety investments. Yeah. So my, um, I generally try to focus on more complicated uh, situations and stocks with, I guess, relatively lower liquidity, mm. because because personally I have, I have a pretty high uh, bar for for uh, required return or mar and margin of safety. I right. usually try to focus on something that's at least you know forty percent undervalued. Um, and for you know to uncover those types of opportunities, you have to really embrace complexity, and and be willing to look at complicated situations. Uh, you know stories that may that's not you know that's not a simple simple uh, like that's not linear for example right I understand yeah so but yeah and I also you know I, I I really talked about all the different fundamentals factors that I look for but I also try to look for some some more tech technical or event driven factors that may that may uh, I guess give rise to those opportunities Mimetics, which we'll which we'll talk about, is a good example. Exactly, uh, I feel like you know this is a perfect segue. You know, mimetics is is one of the most complicated theses that I've ever come across, especially because you know, well, it is a short thesis after all. And uh, yeah, actually, well, this is a perfect moment to to go into your mimetics uh, thesis and sort of explain what happened there. I, I should just first say before we get into this that Hank actually uh, came up with this thesis and he put this together before any large hedge funds had come out with like a public announcement that they were taking up the opportunity. I remember you sent it in to me like a, a month or a week before Prescient Point uh, Capital like made their made their their presence known if that's not if that is, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So, yeah, just run us through like the the what happened with the company and the thesis, and why you think it's super compelling. Sure. So, so just to give a background on the company's story, um, so go back two years. This this Mymedics is a biopharmaceutical manufacturer, so they produce um, wound care products that treat chronic wounds, uh, which are uh, which are being sold to you know the army as well as uh, uh, patients with diabetes because they have certain certain diabetic patients have what's called a diabetic foot ulcer, which which represents a chronic wound. Okay. So, so that's what they do. They basically manufacture and sell wound care products. Uh, so go back two years. This company was absolutely crushing it in the stock market, um, and for good reasons. So the industry that they operate in is is a very fast growing industry. It's growing at double digit growth rates. And MyMedics is a market leader in that industry. So their product uh, are in many ways are better than their competitors. For example, it has a better shelf life, which is very important to doctors and hospitals. Mm. So the company, so MyMedics was growing at 30% uh, year over year growth. Um, and they also were, they were generating decent margins. Uh, I think even the margins was around 12%. And the actual profitability is probably a lot higher than that because their gross margins are ninety percent, and I think in their SGNA there's a lot of growth-related spend. Right, which obviously wouldn't be persisting as the business sort of reaches scale, right? Yeah, now I follow. Yeah, so so good margins, growing industry, uh, and because it's in pharmaceuticals, you'd imagine that it's, it, the demand should be pretty steady and fairly resi recession resistant. So all those, all those, all those things are, you know, what makes what makes strong fundamentals. And the stock was trading at around thirty times EBITDA, and the stock price was at, I call it fifteen dollars. And then what happened was, basically, a group of short sellers came in and started accusing the company 
of financial fraud and uh, basically using illegal tactics like physician kickbacks and channels, channel stuffing to boost right. their sales. Um, and then what made it worse was that uh, a couple months after short sellers uh, showed up, the company uh, basically failed to report their 2018 financial results because of issues in, uh, relating to their internal financial reporting. Right. Okay. So, so there was con there was inter financial control issues, and they also said that they had to restate the last five years of financials because uh, <laughs> it just was wasn't reliable. Right. <laughs> so, so so that obviously opened up a whole can of worms, and the stock price just tanked. Uh, probably I think six sixty percent. I think it went down to like six or seven dollars from right. after that happened. And of and course, it the, gets worse, right? <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, yeah, it'll get worse. Basically, over the next couple months, uh, the company fired uh, its CEO, COO, CFO, and started a comprehensive investigation into uh, all of these acquisitions as well as their financial reporting. Mm. And then, so this dragged on for about nine months. And then the company basically, during this period, still couldn't produce restated financials, which meant that they had to be delisted from the NASDAQ because the NASDAQ requires companies <laughs> to, to report uh, accurate financials. Right, naturally, uh, you know, thank yeah. God they do, right? <laughs> yeah, so they had to be delisted. So so then they had basically, after the delisting, they, they became a stock that was traded over the counter. And when that happened, all the institutional shareholders were forced to sell because by their mandate, they're not allowed to hold uh, OTC stocks. So over-the-counter stocks. Right. So suddenly so, demand just completely fell out. Like there was none anymore for this uh, issue at all. Well, it's more supply, right? Like now suddenly everybody's selling. So right, supply, right. It just suddenly went up like crazy. And the stock price fell uh, another 60%. So it's now down to like $3. Um, and it's still not listed, correct? It's still... Uh... Right, yeah, right now it's still OTC. Um, so basically I, at that point, that's when I did my research on the company and I basically took a long position. And my thesis at the time was that it's, uh, it's first of all, it's an overextended short thesis by the short sellers. Um, they were accusing the company of things like systematic financial fraud and, and physician kickbacks, which is basically uh, situations where you, you bribe the doctor to, to buy your products. Right, now I see. You can imagine right. that's, that's very illegal. Um, so my my view of that was the the legal activities or the shady activities were limited to just channel stuffing, which is um, basically channel stuffing is when you try to sell your customers more product than they could use at the end of a quarter or at the end of a year to boost your sales. Right. Um, so earning pretty much like a number management, managing the numbers for a release and things like that. Yeah, exactly. And what and what happens with uh, channel stuffing is that. Um, the next, like a week afterwards, you a week after you purchase all these products, they probably just ship them back to you because they can't actually use the customer can't use that many products. So, so that's channel stuffing. Um, and then, do you know? Yeah, so do you I, know if that was incentivized maybe by like the? I'm sure that these salespeople. Do you think it was happening as a systematic thing due to some incentive systems, or do you think it was happening as a systematic thing due to executives, or do you think it just wasn't systematic? So part of it is systematic because the company is known to have a very, very aggressive sales culture. And okay. And the company, the reason why the company was on such a uh, growth trajectory is because of the sales culture, right? They were trying to push their products aggressively. And I think this led to really bad behavior. And there's probably a couple of bad apples, uh, sales reps who, who've really actually, you know, um, pushed the line, pushed the envelope on what they could do to push sales. Right. I follow. And and if you look at like Glassdoor reviews, like there's there's just numerous bad complaints about the company culture, uh, the way the incentive systems are set up. So this kind of goes back to our original argument: like company culture is important, and it's important to look at Glassdoor reviews. Right. Yeah, and to understand how these people have been screwed over or incentivized or whatever. Right. Yeah. No, I see. Yeah. I see. Yeah. So basically, but my assessment of the situation was that you know financial fraud was not prevalent. Uh, it's more just channel stuffing because of the sales talk, sales culture that was in place. And with respect to physician, physician kickbacks, even though there have been multiple, uh, you know, employee whistleblowing complaints, 
uh, all of those were on channel stuffing. Nobody was saying this company actually bribed physicians. So that, so, and if they did, I'm sure like that, that would have happened because, because there's, because the way it works is in the U.S., the, the regular, regulatory body offers a very large incentive for employees who, who, uh, who you know whistleblowers basically. right and if there's already a wave of whistleblowers it's even less let's say uh it's even more forgiving to come out as a whistleblower and you know people yeah as you say surely would have pointed it out if it was true yeah yeah so basically my assessment was that there was channel stuffing and 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 basically if you look at the company's financials over the last five years uh this company has generated tens of millions of cash flow um in, every single year and and that's very cash flow is very difficult to fake right you can fake earnings but it's difficult to fake the amount of cash um and I also look at other metrics like uh basically inventory days i looked at sgna per sales rep and i found that so sgna per sales rep wasn't wasn't materially higher than their competitors which meant that it's it's less likely that they're bribing um doctors because because otherwise, if you if you're bribing doctors, then you're you would probably spend more SGA per sales rep. Right. I see. I see. Um, yeah. And then so that's so my assessment was that it's the the entire short thesis and the short sellers were basically um, over accusing the company. And if you look at the fundamentals of the company, like I, like I said, it's it's fundamentally a good business. They still have a market leading product. The industry is growing. I, I don't think that part can be uh, that. I don't think that's that part it can be disputed. Uh, be false. Yeah, yeah, that you can't dispute with that. And it's and you know they it's a it's in the pharmaceutical industry, so it should trade at a decent dividend margin, assuming assuming the numbers are accurate, which they're not, of course. But but you, and basically. Yeah, so no, go on, go on. Yeah, and then, and, you know, channel stuffing is not something that you could sustain for a long period of time. And this company has been growing at 30% year over year for last, you know, five years. So at least so, some of that must have been substantiated by actual, like, good economics and good fundamentals and just generally positive trends, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And also even, you know, channels, a lot, a lot of this like financial shenanigans stuff anyway, you know, like it's just earnings management. It's more of an accounting phenomenon than it is really a fundamental thing, right? Like, yeah, sure, they send back the product, but there isn't a lot of administrative costs in kind of taking back these products, right? Probably, right? I mean, like in terms of the actual fundamental economics of the business as it relates to the company, its product and the industry and the growth of that, you know, it, it shouldn't really matter. I mean, it's just a, it's a, just a sign of some... You know, possibly some like uh, you know gimmickry, you know, which uh, isn't good. Of course, it's not good when a management is gimmicking its finances, or you know, yeah. at, at the very, you know, at the very least, just not great incentive systems uh, for the sales uh, reps, right? That's right. Right, I see. And then the the story gets really complicated, also because of uh, there's apparently so the big short seller behind this was Mark Cahodes, right? He was yeah. kind of the the main guy leading the charge. And uh, when I was looking at some of the communications coming from the company, there were some really flagrant and kind of aggressive releases coming directly from the CEO, directed at Mark Cahody specifically. There's a bit, what's the story? I mean, there's a whole personal dynamic going on as well in yeah. this process, right? Yeah. So what's interesting is that the Mark Cahody actually has a personal vendetta against the CEO. Right. Um, <laughs> th this is this is before the CEO got fired, but basically. I think the CEO had sent FBI agents to Mark because Mark Cahodes, I think, on Twitter made some threats, like live threats to, to the CEO. Right. And the CEO basically reported that to the FBI, and, and the FBI sent a couple of agents to Mark McCody's Mark uh, home to right. tell, him, tell him that you can't make these threats over Twitter. Um, so basically, Mark, he basically has a personal vendetta against the company, <laughs> and that's part of the reason why I think this whole short thesis is very overextended. Right, because there's actually an incentive to sort of exaggerate it beyond, you know, just the channel stuffing and the gimmickry, right? Yeah, that's right. Right, I see, I see. Although, I mean, you have to admit that, of course, you know, uh, they, they were at least initially justified in sort of, you know, not necessarily holding the stock, right, given uh, gimmickry and given these sort of... Yeah, I think, I think if I was, like, before this, all the issues happened, um, 
a prudent investor would have probably stayed away from this company if they right. did their due diligence correctly. Um, but obviously, like the short sellers have gotten something right. Like obviously, there's shady things going on. So kudos to Marco Hodes for from covering this opportunity. Right, and um, of course, creating I, I the opportunity that. for you. Right now, you can come in when when the value proposition is just so compelling. Right. Yeah, I just think it's gone way too far. And right. and there's other I mean, other parts of my thesis is that this like this whole issue of getting delisted uh, has happened to one of their direct competitors li literally a year before. So one of their competitors also had issues with channel stuffing. Was it Osiris? So, Was that the name of the yeah, competitor? That's right. So they basically had to delist from the Nasdaq. Share share price just crumbled after they delisted, and then after the year. Um, they had they released restated financials and and the amount of impact the amount of overstatement actually wasn't that much, so they got relisted and then the share price went up like two or three times after they relisted. Oh, like the moment they did. So there's there it's not going to be easy to come into this thing because for example, I can't invest in non-listed stocks, right? So uh, it did, you know, it didn't happen like the moment they relisted, but it, obviously there was a jump after they relisted, and then over the next you know year it's gone up even higher. Right. Okay. So definitely, so, it's a stock to keep track of. Then, as uh, you know, as uh, it approaches sort of the relisting uh, deadline or the relisting date, right? Yeah, that's right. So nobody knows what that date is, but it's you got to believe that if if you think this company um, is not systematically fraudulent, then they're going to release restated financials at, at some point. And when that happens, you, you can expect a jumping share price. Right. Right. But uh, right, so that's memetics pretty much. So this is, I guess, a perfect example of sort of an event. Uh, not only is it an event-driven thesis because you're waiting for relisting, you're waiting for the marketability of the stock to come up, but it's also a special situation where you came in at like you know a pretty deep value price, right? And uh, yeah. but like yeah, and of course this was the long thesis that we were going to talk about today. But uh, on the other hand, you you're also interested in a short in a certain short thesis. Which actually is one that uh, I was looking into when uh, when we last saw each other, and at the time, uh, first of all, have your views changed since uh, I kind of uh, showed you or uh, you know uh, maybe notice this company, and uh, why are you so confident in its overvaluation now? Yeah, so so just to give a little bit of right. First of all, we're talking about Tootsie Roll Industries. I forgot to mention. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Actually, does your listeners? Uh, are they familiar with the stock already, or should I should I talk a little bit about? What yeah, let's talk a little bit about it, just basically. Okay, I mean, yeah. So it's it's I mean it's, it's the easiest business in the world to understand. They basically, Tuzzy Rose is a candy manufacturer, so they produce and distribute uh, candy called Tuzzy Rose. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the industries the industry they live in is pretty stable. It's very stable actually, um, because it's a consumer staple. And it's very mature. The industry is dominated by a, a couple of large players like Mars, Mondelez, etc. Hershey's and for sure in the U.S. Hershey's, yeah. And you know, St Stefan had told me about this name um, when we worked together at Clearvest. Um, at the time, I, I just didn't, you know, honestly, not not much has changed since you told me the stock. Other other than the fact that the stock price went up a bit higher. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I just basically one they decided that i should probably look into this opportunity yeah. and then basically found it to be outrageously overvalued so that, that's when i decided to take a short position it's such an absurd stock i've never quite seen anything like it because first of all just looking at its multiple right you know the basic p multiple you can see it on google finance right it's already like way higher than apple it's way higher than most like you know pretty hefty and still pretty fast growing tech companies right What's the multiple right now? I think it's like, it's above yeah, so, 30, right? So I, I was looking at the EV to EBITDA and EV to EBIT multiple. So it's right, which is of course a, a better three times. Yeah, depending on how you, how you benchmark it, but I, I tend to focus on EV multiples. So it's trading at 23 times EV to EBITDA and 30 times EV to EBIT. Uh, and if you look at their two closest uh, comparables, which is Hershey's and Mondelez, they trade at 16 times EV to EBITDA. So it's a significantly higher multiple than those two competitors. And the company is a lot smaller. The growth profile isn't as strong. 
And if you look at any financial metric like margins, return on net assets, it's it's worse than you know, Hershey and Monolith. <laughs> it's just crappier. Yeah, I, I can't. I mean, the most amazing thing is uh, how. So yeah, as you said, the growth pro profile isn't strong, and of course, generally, you know, the confectionery industry is struggling a little bit with uh, you know evolving consumer trends. Right, people are becoming more cognizant of sort of the health concerns, you know, regarding uh, you know confectionaries and other parts of the food industry. But, uh, you know, what, what makes it even worse, right, just, you know, even these general uh, headwinds is that the management is probably one of the most passive managements that I've ever seen. They're all like above 60, 70 years old, right? They're like just a bunch of fossils yeah. in this company. So, and so uh, yeah, go the on. CEO, the CEO is an 80 year old woman who right. was the wid widow of the former CEO uh, who passed away in 2015. So she's, uh, I mean, I'm sure when you're I'm not even, this is not even like a criticism of her, but basically if you're 87 year, years old, you're not actively running the business. I don't care who you are. Uh, unless you're uh, Warren Buffett, right? Then maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, Warren, yeah, unless you're Warren Buffett. Um, and then the remaining management team are all over 60 years old. And they, they basically have zero share-based incentive, like options to motivate them. Uh, so, I mean, I'm sure the manage, management team is very concerned with job security as opposed to share price performance. And you can see that because the company is literally holding $250 million of cash on the balance sheet just sitting there. Even though this company generates, like, they don't need any cash on the balance sheet. This company is a cash cow, but they just, they want to keep that cash balance on the balance sheet and as opposed to pay it out to, to shareholders. Or, you know, even, you know, maybe even if it's suboptimal, at least acquire some new brands. I mean, Tootsie Roll is, you know, like I love Tootsie Rolls and I think there's a lot of people that, you know, older people that love Tootsie Rolls and kind of, you know, think the brand is very iconic, but the modern generation are not Tootsie Roll consumers. In fact, in Canada, I remember when I was there, I could not find Tootsie Rolls in any, in any, in pretty much anywhere. I found it in like an Indian uh, supermarket pretty much. And it was just the most <laughs> random thing, right? I mean, it was very hard to track down. Like Hershey's yeah. has Reese's, which is a lot more popular as like a, you know, kind of, let's say, if we consider Tootsie Rolls to fall within a chocolate category, right? You know, Hershey's has Hershey's and Reese's as, uh, you know, brands that are just way more uh, vibrant and way more interesting. And there's a lot more innovation. I mean, Tootsie's have always been just the midges and the logs, which, you know, are still kind of like, I feel like pretty politically incorrect names. You know, it's like they haven't even, like a log. I mean, that's just grotesque, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, midgey, like I don't, I don't understand. But anyway, right. <laughs> you know, and their growth profile is just terrible. I mean, the funniest, I'm never going to forget it when I first looked at their 10K, at their business section, it was like, yes, we do, we do conduct research and development activities, but it, it isn't even aligned on our, in our cost structure. Like we don't, we haven't expensed any research and development activities at all. Right? Yeah. I think they, they basically admit that they, they spend an immaterial amount on research and development, which probably means, which basically means zero. <laughs> <laughs> Literally just nothing. It's it's bizarre, and then again, like you know, it's actually decline. Its revenues have been declining pretty steadily for you know a while now. I remember the last Halloween season was like a huge disappointment. I think it even declined sequentially, even though it was Halloween. It was the most absurd thing. Yeah, so I think overall, like you said, like the first of all, the industry is under pressure because c consumers are shifting to healthier alternatives like chocolate. Um, and low calorie alternatives. Right. So like like to zero because they don't spend any money on R and D, their candy is still extremely sweet. It's <laughs> it's old, pretty old fashioned. Right. So like you would just without anything, you would expect um, you know revenue to slowly decline over time. And on on top of that, um, th this company has been facing a lot of cost pressures. So in the U S, uh, uh, basically there's there's a shortage of low-skilled labor and drivers, and that's resulted in uh, a lot of cost inflation in their manufacturing overhead and freight and distribution costs. Right. If you, look at the, if you look at their financials, their EBITDA margin has been on a steady decline over the last two or three years. And I, I think this is going to continue because, um, you know, unemployment rate in the U.S. is at an all-time low. So there's, there's, no, there's no, I guess, improvement in sight for this company. Uh, the management has said that they want to increase, they want to put through some price increases to combat 
the cost inflation. However, this is going to be difficult because Walmart's their, their largest largest customer, and you know the one thing Walmart wants to prevent is suppliers increasing prices. Right, and they have the bargaining power to you know they don't have any real obligation to supply Tootsie Rolls. Like if there's really such you know there yeah. might actually be a small enough market where you could just replace Tootsie Rolls on your shelves in a lot of cases. Yeah, I mean and that was evident most... in Canada at least. Exactly, and what's most interesting is actually so I did some actual field research in Canada. So right. I went to I went to like a couple of WalMarts and tried to find Tootsie Rolls, and I couldn't find any of them uh, in any of the stores. So then I asked my I asked a friend who works at Walmart to see like what like they asked if they still carry Tootsie Rolls, and my friend basically told me that they used to carry them in 2018, but then starting 2019, they just stopped carrying it. And it so. And it's sort of a disaster because I, they actually produce a fair amount of their product in Canada as well, in within Canadian yeah. borders, right? So, like, yeah. presumably, you know, if they could ship it to Canadian suppliers, they would be, right? I mean, that was probably the initial For point sure. with... Uh, yeah, and so historically, 8.5% of their sales is from Canada. And if, if my field research is correct, like, that's... Just, I, I, I can't... There's no way that I can be 100% certain that... 100 certain that Walmart Canada no longer carries Tootsie Rolls, but if if my research was correct, then you know in Q1 2019 we're going to see sales that are materially lower. Yeah, I mean it's. Well, I guess we'll <laughs> we'll find out. I think they released. I think they released for the uh, quarterlies tomorrow. Actually. Yeah, I'm still out. short. I'm still short Tootsie Roll. Very happily, I feel, even though the price still, you know, against all you know reason, just continues to rise. Uh, you know, seeing yeah, with the, I, w- I was trying to think about, you know, what, what are the, okay, so actually probably the most interesting discussion around Tootsie Rolls at this stage is what's keeping the price so high? Yeah, so it's, I think the biggest thing is just that uh, there's, people think that this company is going to get acquired by a larger competitor like Hershey or Mondelez. Right. Uh, because, you know, it's, it's really just a cash cow that, there's the company's not really doing anything to grow the company. Sorry, the, the CEO is not really doing anything to grow the company. So, like, presumably the widow wants to just get get out of this position and sell to a competitor. The issue with that is that um, the valuation is just simply way too high, and no, like, they're trading at a higher uh, multiple than Hershey and Mondelez. So, there's in no way is this going to be accretive. Yeah, exactly. Or, it's or like an acquirer. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and and then I I basically looked at some like some uh, historical precedents or recent precedents uh, in the food and beverage space, mm. and and like for a company like Tootsie Roll size, you can probably expect twenty to twenty five million of synergies. So I think Tootsie Roll's EBITDA is is uh, around a hundred million or ninety million. So even so, even factor in like twenty to twenty five million of synergies. Uh, this is still not going to be accretive for a larger, uh, a larger acquirer. Yeah, it's just that overvalued, simply. Yeah. I mean, what what are other reasons? I suppose you know when uh, when I was, I mean, I only have like anecdotal evidence of this on you know Seeking Alpha and various other like financial media outlets. But it seems that you know the people who are invested in Tootsie Roll or the institutions that are invested in Tootsie Roll are just happy at they probably bought in ages ago and are happy at receiving the dividend. Uh, you know, on their initial holdings, and they're just treating it as sort of a dividend uh, cow, right? Yeah, I think honestly, it's it's a part of the reason is just because of ETFs. I think they're probably including in a couple of like high dividend ETFs or or uh, consumer confectionery, like or the cons- confectionery industry ETFs. Right, that would make and, a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah, and they basically just fly under the radar uh, because they don't they don't do any analyst costs, so, so there's no research coverage on this company. So it just kind of goes up and down based on how the ETFs performs. It's pretty unbelievable. Yeah, you're right. You know, they 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 do absolutely no analyst outreach. Their business sec their business section in the 10K, which you know usually is like 30 pages long of them talking about how great their company is and how many advantages they have. It's like one and a half pages long, right? With no analyst coverage. No one's interested in the stock, even though it's a pretty iconic brand, at least you know for older North Americans, right? Yeah, it's just absurd that there would be such, or what seems to be such, an opportunity—you know, a short opportunity in a company like this at this stage. 
you know, with this kind of, you know, what you'd expect, a, you know, pretty high brand value. Yeah, part of the part of the other re- other issue with shorting the stock is that it's the liquidity is pretty low, and for you to short it, you have to, you do have to pay a borrowing cost because of the low liquidity. So I think yeah. that's probably preventing some people from just taking the short position. And it's not insubstantial. I think it's like a three or four percent borrowing cost per annum, at least you know, on my brokerage. Uh, so it's for not... me, it's one point six percent. Okay, right. You probably have a much more efficient brokerage platform than I guess, but fair enough. <laughs> I mean, I don't have access to memetics either. You know, I guess we have to. Yeah, but it's absurd. I remember when I, the, well, how did you value this? So you, you, oh yeah, actually we haven't even spoken about this, but generally what's your, what's the technical approach you take with valuation generally? So you, do you, do you use multiples? Do you use cash flows? Do you use both? Yeah, I think I, I take a pretty wide approach, like depending on the, stock really so for example for my medics i had to do um i did like a full dcf to try to figure out okay like if 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 this amount of things go bad like how much margin of safety do i really have um so like for a complicated situation i'll always try to do a pretty comprehensive financial forecast but in Tosiro's case, like this is pretty easy business to value. Like it, I just basically did it based on multiples. Like this business should really trade at no more than fifteen times EBITDA. So, what 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 is the share price? What should the share price be at fifteen times EBITDA? And that's my target price. Yeah, I mean, it should you know it should at least be trading at like a you know at most it should be trading at a no growth terminal value, right? Just the whole business is kind of you know at best a no growth terminal business, right? But uh, yeah, yeah, it's a lot higher than that. I mean, it's really, really a lot higher than that. But look, Hank, uh, we've actually hit the one hour mark. So this has been a pretty hefty uh, podcast. And I don't want to take up any more of your time. I know you're really busy. But thanks so much for coming by. This was a really interesting podcast. I think we covered, you know, a huge amount of uh, concepts, a huge amount of ground. And, uh, you know, you really helped us out a lot with, uh, you know, presenting these two ideas to us. It's really just very juicy, something really to get our fangs into. Great. Well, thanks for inviting me. It's been, uh, it's been fun. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. It absolutely has. Well, anyway, yeah, uh, you know, thanks to, to Hank Sue for uh, really making this podcast something fantastic. Thanks so much, Hank. And, no uh, yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed that one. It's, <laughs> it's really a juicy podcast. Bye-bye. Okay, take care.